Section 22 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. At the Sign of the World's End, Bolshevism and the Black Army, by G.K. Chesterton. The fact that Mr. Bernard Shaw is gratified about Genoa will be taken by many as a sort of symbol or summary of the fact that nobody else is gratified with it. Of course, Mr. Shaw does not rejoice in it as a triumph for the British any more than the French Prime Minister, but for the Bolshevists. In a recent article in the Sunday Pictorial, he describes socialism wiping the floor with the backward and barbarous nations of Western Europe. I do not here dispute whether Genoa was a triumph for Bolshevism, but I do dispute that Bolshevism was a triumph for socialism. Bolshevism was a triumph for slavery and forced labor, managed first theoretically by communism, and now openly by capitalism. But anyhow, his joy is mixed with bitterness, for in the same article he breaks out in the queerest way about France and her army, which it seems is a, quote, black army, unquote. This ethnological explanation certainly explains much. Mr. Shaw himself, for instance, has extolled the merits of Carpentier as a pugilist. How much more natural they seem now we know he is a replica of Jack Johnson. The French are Negroes, and presumably have always been Negroes. Their Algerian conquests are the natural return of Africans to Africa. The mystery of Napoleon in Egypt is explained. The phrase sans culotte will be simple to those who realize that Paris is in equatorial Africa. How does so clever a man come to be talking such pitiable nonsense? Let us think. Mr. Bernard Shaw shines as a controversialist in nothing so much as his unaffected good temper. He generally keeps himself above his subject, as it were, by a sort of magnanimous flippancy. He does not allow his subject to provoke him, a point which gives him some advantage over his intellectual equals, such as Mr. H. G. Wells. As no one has been better treated by this genial genius than I, I must say with some regret that there seems to be an exception to the rule. There is one subject that does irritate Mr. Shaw, and most of those who think with him, in what must seem a queer and disproportionate fashion, and that is the subject of France. To him that lucidity is a mystery. To this master of paradoxes, its very platitude is a paradox. The reason of this subconscious irritation is natural enough when we think it out. The French are a people who have admittedly maintained through many centuries a certain relative leadership of civilization, chiefly by intelligence and skill. Things that require rapid but detached thinking they do better and quicker than most Europeans, such as military strategy or, for that matter, fencing. Yet they do all this without taking any notice of new religions or new and negative ideals. They will never be vegetarians. They will never be teetotalers. They will never be socialists. They will never be feminists. For those who think such fads are the faiths of the future, France never seems to have made a step toward the future. She seems to be merely marking time, yet she is always in the front rank. She seems to be always doing the old things of the old peasant and the old soldier, but doing the old things so successfully 
that they seem to be new things. She leaves the paths of progress to right and left of her as byways that would be in her own phrase bag ends. She goes along a highway that is like one of her own straight military highways. That is, it is so monotonous that those marching on it hardly seem to be moving, although they are moving very fast. It is so straight that it seems as if it would never get anywhere, but it gets there all the same. But a straight road always is the shortest and always seems to be the longest. In the matter of the supernatural, for instance, the French have a curious carelessness about anything except an old religion and a still older irreligion. For new religions they care nothing, and for new irreligions even less. They are indeed an extraordinary and exasperating phenomenon. They are something that ought to be left behind and is always in front. Now this is the one paradox that logically throws out and baffles all the Shavian paradoxes. There is much to be said for a winding road full of surprises, but the discovery that the man plodding along the dull road is still ahead is the greatest surprise of all. A man like Mr. Shaw, great as he is, must live by a sectarian sensationalism, crying lo here and lo there, the flying paradise being open only to the Tolstoyan or the perfect Wagnerite, or the quintessential Ibsenist. He is naturally annoyed with the sort of civilization that can disregard Tolstoy and do without him, that can ignore Ibsen and outlast him. The Shavian enthusiasms are things of the past because they were things of the future, and his plays are all the more dated because they were post-dated. We can always date a period by its prophecies, especially its unfulfilled prophecies, but the importance of farming and the importance of fighting are never prophesied, but only fulfilled. That a peasant can live when a merchant and his clerks are starving is not something seen by anybody as a vision of the future. It is only something now seen by everybody as a fact of the present. If an army counts for as much 50 years hence as it did 500 years ago and five years ago, that sort of fact will not be predicted. It will only be proved. Extraordinary things are always expected, but ordinary things, like arms and agriculture, are never expected, and they always return suddenly, like Ulysses. Now I urge all this by way of excuse for Mr. Shaw, and to cover up the lamentable lapse and loss of temper, otherwise so very unlike him, which led him to drop for a moment into some drivel about the Senegalese and France's, quote, black army, unquote. It may not be generally known that Foch is a Negro, and Joffrey a black gentleman from Senegal. But Mr. Shaw may know it or may believe it. Anger can always find the weak spot in a man's mind. But the excuse for the weakness is that France angers him because France puzzles him. He is puzzled by the fact of a very civilized people being always a very military people. He feels that being military ought to mean being black and barbaric, so he tries desperately to believe that it does. But if this be true about militarism and peace, it is still more true about socialism and property. On Shavian principles, all private property ought to be dying, and small, rustic, hole-in-corner private property ought to be dead. As a fact, it is the only economic thing that is not either dead or dying. It is the one thing that is thriving in the desolation of Europe. The peasants have succeeded everywhere. They have won back their private land alike, from the revolutionists in Russia and from the reactionaries in Ireland. 
and in France they have never lost it. That is what makes France so annoying, that the French have put their money on the right horse, though it had been turned out to grass as the old horse. They will never be theoretical vegetarians in thousands of years. They have only already been practical vegetarians, in the sense of making better meals out of vegetables in every cottage than we can make in luxurious vegetarian restaurants. They will never have any temperance reform. They only have temperance, and prove it by drinking nothing but wine. They will never really have a woman's movement, having already the most powerful and comfortable women in Europe. Similarly, they will never really be socialists, not even honest socialists like Shaw, far less dishonest socialists like Bronstein, who calls himself Trotsky. For that is the very simple issue which Mr. Shaw ignores in the article in question. He calls the announcement of a commercial compact between the Jews of Russia and Germany the first fight between socialism and the old diplomacy. Surely there had been a previous fight, before Lenin himself admitted that Russia is again a capitalist country. Surely Lenin did not accept that slight modification altogether without a fight. But the truth is that he first yielded to something much older than the old diplomacy. He was forced to allow private property to the old peasantry. And then he and Bronstein actually called in the worst kind of private property to crush the best. They openly called in the rich to crush the poor. The Bolshevists themselves explain, in words I could easily quote, that they have tried to destroy the peasantry not by communism, but by capitalism, and by all the very vilest of the vile tricks of capitalism, by cornering and conspiracy and undercutting and freezing out. Bolshevism by this time is not merely the capitalism that employs and exploits, but the capitalism that swindles and sweats. In short, there is an even simpler reason for denying that what appeared at Genoa was the first fight of socialism with diplomacy. What appeared at Genoa was not socialism at all. It no longer even pretends to be socialism at all. It is only defended by the Bolshevists themselves as capitalism and openly on the ground that, quote, capitalism is better than medievalism, end quote. They mean by medievalism, of course, the notion of some moral dignity in man. It would be extraordinary enough that a man of Mr. Shaw's abilities should figure as such a dupe, but in this case we can hardly say he has even the right to be a dupe. We can hardly say that he is even deceived by the Bolshevists, when the Bolshevists are no longer even trying to deceive him. Bronstein and his friends tell Mr. Shaw quite plainly at the top of their voices that their Russia is a capitalist country, that their object is a capitalist object and the worst of capitalist objects, the oppression of the poor, that they are calling in the Rockefellers and Rothschilds of the world to ruin a hard-working populace, and that all this is a thing to be bragged about merely because it is not medieval, or in other words, merely because it is not moral. And all Mr. Shaw can do is to wink at us with a sort of childlike cunning and tell us to admire the subtlety of socialist diplomacy. If it were socialist diplomacy, it would certainly be highly diplomatic socialism. As a fact, it is about as socialist as a soap trust. It is a vulgar trade bargain between the financial Jews who live indifferently on either side of the faded frontier between two dead empires. Financial Jews who fancy that they have done the trick and can afford to throw off the mask. But he still thinks the mask worth worshipping, when they no longer think it worth wearing. And the real mystery 
is not so much that they could deceive him when they wanted to. It is that they cannot undeceive him when they try. End of section 22